an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, Hello. Hello. Greetings, Max. What have you got for us this week? Guys, I've got an exciting one. I'm excited about this one. I just finished the interview. It was long. It was enjoyable. I talked to Brian Reed and Hamza Syed. You guys will know Brian. He was the host of S-Town. He came on the show a couple of days after S-Town came out. And uh, S-Town went on huge hit. Brian went and toured the world doing talks and Q&As and all kinds of things. And he was in a town in England, Birmingham, giving a talk. And this kid came up to him after the show, a student journalist who was working on a story. And Brian decided that he was so compelled by this pitch that he was going to join him and partner on it and do it together. The show is called The Trojan Horse Affair. It came out on Thursday. It is very hard to describe. And so I'm going to do a thing that I don't think we've ever done before, which is that I'm just going to ask Brian to describe it. Here you go. Here's Brian Reed explaining what the show is about. The show's about an unsigned, very strange, bizarre letter that turned up at the Birmingham City Council in 2013 that looked to be plans for an Islamist plot where these uh, conspirators were trying to take over the city's schools and possibly radicalize kids. And the letter leaked to the press. It became a huge national scandal, went all the way up to the prime minister. A former counter-terror chief was sent in to investigate. No plot was ever found. But at the end, like there still remained this stink of basically wrongdoing and terror against this whole community. And, and you know, like counter extremism laws were changed. Schools were revamped. But through all that, nobody ever investigated who wrote the letter or why. Nobody ever like kind of looked at it with this basic question. And, and that's what Hansa wanted to do. That was helpful. Now you guys can see why I didn't want to do it myself. <laughs> it's very, very hard. Uh, but the one other thing I will say is um, it's a very complicated story. It's a pretty complicated show. And we really got into the weeds of how they told it. And there's spoilers everywhere, uh, including the ending. So if you have not listened to The Trojan Horse Affair, do not listen to this interview. Press pause. Go listen to the show. Come back. It'll make a lot more sense that way. I haven't listened to the show yet. I am going to uh, cue this podcast in my queue until I've listened to it as S-Town, unabashedly my favorite podcast ever. I uh, I don't want to have the follow-up spoiled by Max Linsky discussing it. So uh, <laughs> do like me. Uh, give it a few days. I know that this is a hard show to describe because uh, uh, my wife is listening to it and just has been giving me updates. And I thought it was set in Birmingham, Alabama the whole time. So clearly uh, confusion is possible. Let's Let's get everything <laughs> lined up properly. Very different show. Very different show in Alabama than in the UK. We are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us produce this show. Thank you to them. And now here's Max with Brian Reed and Hamza Syed. Hamza, Brian, 
Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thank you guys for doing this. Thanks, Max. Hello, Max. Thanks for having us. Uh, Brian, I feel like we are like a approaching tradition. Two makes a tradition, I hope. I think yeah. so. I think so. A couple days after S-Town came out, you uh, came and we talked for a while and I asked you a bunch of questions about how you were feeling and you sort of evaded them. And uh, now you're <laughs> back. You two have a new show out and uh, it's been out for a couple of days and I wonder how you're feeling. I can't speak for Hamza, but I feel... <laughs> um, I f- when it comes to feeling questions, you are supposed to speak for me. <laughs> we discussed this. I draw the feelings out of you. That's my job. I feel numb and not really sure what to do with myself. That's kind of how I feel. We've just been going so hard at this for so long. And to like be waking up and like there's not some line we could fiddle with or some like fact checking thing we could check or I don't know, like some pickups to do. Yeah. Like in the last month or just like it was just like this never ending, like constantly trying to like make it a little better, you know, every day. And to not have that to do and just have it be out there is strange. And, and slightly empty feeling. That sounds great. Empty feeling? Sounds dark. I, not dark. I just don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> I just don't know what Go to for do a walk, myself. Mate. Go for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> the weather was lovely yesterday. <laughs> Hamza, Brian's been through this before and still has no idea what to do with himself. Where are you at? You know what? The best time I've had since this come out was on Friday. I went to the... Um, taping of the John Stewart show with a friend of mine and they seal your phone, you know, it's like a live show that they're filming. So they seal the phone in one of those pouches for about four hours. And that was bliss. <laughs> that was the best time I've had since it's come out. And I was talking to Brian about it afterwards on the Saturday and we were both like, like <laughs> legitimately like, if we could just do that every day, just seal the phone away for like four hours in a pouch, we cannot get to it. I think I'd sleep better genuinely. So that's where I am. I just want to be away from my phone. Did you have expectations of what this time would feel like? No. I mean, I talked to Brian about it. I was just like, tell me what happened, you know, when S-Town came out. But uh, he just keeps telling me about going for a walk. Like he said, I left the studio. I went for a walk. I went to a bar. I had some like shellfish or something. I don't know. He just keeps telling me the same story. So uh, I was like, okay, I'm not sure I can relate with this for sure. Yeah, sounds right. Um, so yeah, I had, I had zero like expectations of what was going to happen. I knew it was going to like do something. I just didn't know what that something was going to be. I mean, one of the conversations you guys are having in the show is how different your orientation to what the reaction to the show will be. And on some level, I feel like, Brian, that changes more for you over the course of it than for Hamza. But it's interesting that like um, part of the reason, I guess, Hamza, that you were doing it was for uh, a reaction, for an impact. And... I wonder how, how you guys have felt that so far. Like, what has the reaction been in Birmingham and in the UK? In Birmingham, we're still getting a read on things. It's a little unclear. I feel like, you know, it's it's a long series. It's like we dropped an encyclopedia into the world <laughs> right. and we're like, react, you know? <laughs> um, but I feel like people are listening. You know, it takes some time, it takes some thought. The weekend just ended, so I feel like, you know, more people have listened. And so more reactions starting to come in. In Birmingham, it's a little unclear, like, exactly what's happening at least in terms of like the local government and stuff like that. There's been a bit of coverage about Michael Gove and like some of the reporting and revelations that the podcast has about his involvement with this and what he knew about the letter, the Trojan horse letter before. And so that's gotten some national press, which has been gratifying because mm-hmm. I feel like that is some of the kind of newsiest stuff that we were able to uncover about this. So I'm glad that people recognize that, you know, and I feel like there's a conversation starting to 
begin again about this like story that people have tried to say is old. But then I know there's also been response from East Birmingham and just, you know, a lot of the people we interviewed there who just, I just think like nobody really, us included to some extent, like could envision exactly what this project was. Like we've been hanging around there for so long, like just like bothering people and interviewing people so many times. And like, you know, just like a whole pandemic has happened. You know, my wife and I have like had a child like during that time, like so much has happened and people are just like, is this ever coming out? Like, what is this that you're making and why is it taking so long? And like, what is it going to be like? And so I think even after all that, people are, are kind of like surprised and I think kind of um, finding it weirdly cathartic. You think that's fair Hamza from the people you've heard? from to listen to yeah yeah like in general i'm still waiting for britain to kind of um i don't know like like make sense of it you know what i mean i'm still waiting for britain to kind of come to terms with it and decide what they're going to do about this podcast i still think it's early i felt like the weekend is when people really started listening to it so it's still kind of early days and i'm not sure i don't really have a good read on what's going to happen but in terms of just like from people that i know or even just like other people on twitter and stuff like the reaction has been really cool. People are really feeling it. And the stuff that they're like kind of speaking about and the stuff that they're reaching out to me about are all themes in the story that I was hoping like people would really kind of resonate with. So I'm hopeful. What are those themes? What were, what are people talking to you about that you feel sort of validated and gratified? Yeah, as soon as I said that, I knew you were going to ask me that question, Max. And I was like, <laughs> why did I set him up for that? I, um, I was going to ask that anyway. <laughs> I thought this was a case in which like there could be a certain understanding that develops about when there's, I don't know, like a breaking news or a breaking scandal that involves Muslims. I feel like those stories are treated in a very um, specific kind of way where a lot of it is internalized and believed pretty quickly. And I always wanted to just create a bit of a pause for the evidence to catch up to what the allegations were. And that's kind of what my intention was with this story was just like, it would be nice to have a gap. It'd be nice for some space to be made where there is a claim that's, that comes out in the papers and there is a pause from people who are reading that or, or like kind of uh, receiving it to be like, let's wait for the evidence. And the people who have heard the series, there seems to be a conversation that's happening. You know what I mean? About like how this case was reported on, what they understood about the Trojan horse from like 2014 and what they're learning from this podcast now about, you know, the stuff that wasn't covered. So there's that. And then, I don't know, it's just like... Um, it's just like a snapshot of just like a reporting journey that has commentary on a few things, including Britain, that people are tapping into and taking forward. And that's, for me, quite gratifying. I can imagine. I can, and particularly after how much time you guys spent on it. And I think there's probably an argument that it takes that much time to tell the story in the way that you guys did which no one has before, but I'll push back on that a little bit. We're all, we're also just a little slow. We're slow. Well, I, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I, I, yeah. I, I want to understand that because I know how long you've been working on it, but I'm not sure other people do. And it's slightly like elliptical in the show. Yeah. Like exactly how long you were working on it. And so, yeah, um, we're embarrassed of it. Yeah. Well, I, uh, <laughs> how slow we are. <laughs> how long were you working on it? It's a reference for people listening. We call people Prime Minister, and the name changes several times in that story. Like, <laughs> Theresa May is referenced as Prime Minister. David Cameron is referenced as Prime Minister. <laughs> Boris Johnson is referenced. That gives you a little, uh, like, you know, yeah. uh, reference for how long we've been working we on We were story. not working on it when Cameron was, was Prime Minister, I don't think. <laughs> right? All right, no, um, no. But anyway. I hope not. Yeah, yeah no, I, I met Hamza um, in, like, either September or October, I think it was, of 2017. 
And like a little bit of the preliminary reporting was kind of happening. Like we stayed in touch over that fall. But I had like a full-time job. Like I was senior producer of This American Life. So I was like running a radio show. So I'd kind of like stay in touch with him. You know, he was in school. I'd be like, here's a recorder. Can you go do this or go pull this record, go to this event? I think I took my first reporting trip there with him for a week in early 2018. And then over that year, we were kind of working on it like part-time. Was there a point, Brian, where you went from like, I'm helping this kid I met backstage out with his project to like, this is the thing I'm going to do next? I actually felt pretty um, bullish on it being the thing I was going to do next pretty early. It was more like as things were really hard, like a little later, where I was like, wait, should this be the thing I'm doing next? (laughs) Because it was just like nobody was talking. This is like, you know, this is radio or podcasting. Like, it's helpful to have people talk in order to tell a story. It's a lot of documents. Hamza was being such a pain in the ass. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Hamza was like fucking up here and there. Like, you know, it was just like... Relentlessly. At the beginning, I was very bullish and hopeful. And then there were like (laughs) moments where I uh, questioned that as time went on. You must have felt a lot of pressure in how you were going to follow up S-Town. Actually, I mean, maybe subconsciously, but I really tried not to, like, tap into that. I'd like to tap into it for just a second, because it seems really hard okay. to me, man. You made, like, ah, the best <laughs> podcast ever. It must have been a little... Uh, stop it. I'm not going to stop it. It must have been a little freaky to think about how you follow that up. And, I, I mean, I know you well enough to know that you actually can compartmentalize like that and just decide not to think about it. But... I'm interested in from just from a story perspective, like the kind of thing you wanted to do next. Why did this feel right? Like why mm-hmm. did why did this feel big enough and ambitious enough to satisfy that? I mean, it was definitely nice. Like after S Town, like I wasn't in a position where I had to find a story to report. Like I had this job that was fulfilling, where I was mostly editing other people's stories and like putting together a radio show, and that was actually very good because it meant that. I never had to do another story of my own again if I didn't want to. You know, it been put me in a position of like, if something catches my attention or interest, like maybe then I'll consider it. But I didn't feel like this burning pressure to write a second book or something the way that like an author might, mm-hmm. which was a helpful position to be in. But then some months after S-Town came out, like I got wind of a story in Alaska that was about this fight they were having in this remote town over whether to pass a non-binding resolution to simply state that the town is welcoming to immigrants or not. And the town was riven apart about this, even though there were essentially no immigrants in the town. And I went there to report on this debate, and it was um, pretty remarkable that there was a a real strain of the residents of this town, literally at the end of the road in America, who were tapping into news about Europe in particular and about migrant communities in Europe, kind of right-wing representations and misrepresentations of what was happening in these places. So you'd be like, be in the, like this field overlooking Kachemak Bay in Alaska. And someone's like, well, yeah, have you heard about what's happening in Cologne, Germany? Like, we don't want that to happen here in Homer. And it was just so like dislocating and very strange. Yeah. And, and like the power of that really struck me. And I started talking to people back at This American Life about like, like you just want, I had this desire to like take somebody I was talking to and, and bring them to one of these places. And, like, actually, we talked about, like, is that a story? Like, should we take somebody on a trip somewhere, you know? And that was kind of, those were kind of the discussions I was having. Like, take someone from Homer to Cologne. Yeah, I think I actually pitched this. Like, (laughs) if not (laughs) formally, informally. So that was, like, kind of where my head was at. And I knew Birmingham was kind of on that list of these towns 
there'd been like a very kind of infamous Fox News segment where a commentator claimed that the entirety of Birmingham was taken over by Muslim immigrants who like had turned it into a no-go zone where like white people couldn't go in. And he like said this on Fox News. I think it's one of the few times, is this right, Hamza, where like Fox News actually apologized for getting something wrong? As I understand it, yeah. Because yeah. I like, think the Prime Minister of Britain at the time was just like, what is this? And it kind of escalated. That's like a media solar eclipse, Fox News apologizing. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, it was still, it was a even a different time then, I guess, when this was said. But, you know, Birmingham was kind of famously one of these cities that was used to paint this false and scary and fear-mongering picture of European cities. So when I was there, and Hamza mentioned this to me, kind of was in the world of stuff that I'd been thinking about as a possible next story anyway, except it was like an actual mystery that felt like Clue or Sherlock Holmes. Right. I was like, oh, this is like a story. I don't need like a gimmick to like fly like a Homer resident (laughs) up to Birmingham. (laughs) Maybe we don't need a gimmick here. This is like an actual (laughs) thing that happened that is unsolved. And that seems to have done damage, you know? That's so interesting. I didn't realize that you were that primed for it in my head it was just like you were casting about for the next thing and i assumed probably getting wild pitches from all over the world all the time and then uh a guy just comes up to you backstage in birmingham and you're like oh we'll try this one (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I wasn't casting about so much for the next thing just more following like kind of reporter interests you know i was getting a lot of weird emails as well but (laughs) um yeah and how's it for you like uh walking into that moment backstage you're told you get five minutes with brian my assumption is that there's nowhere on your screen is that this is how it plays out no i mean the intention of that night was totally different like i was going to do this story as a student project you know that was the plan and i applied for this journalism course and we were supposed to start the day after and operation trojan horse is just like it's such a well-known event in britain that it was Difficult, I think, just to kind of engage someone in a conversation that felt like fresh, like they were just listening to me from like beat one. Mm-hmm. Because you're always, whoever you talk to about the Trojan horse, they have like countless headlines already in their head. And the detail of the letter does not take as much significance because they're thinking, oh, but there was a government inquiry and oh, there was, you know, four different national uh, investigations and tons of reporters have looked at this. So when you keep trying to bring people back to the letter, it just seems like, why? With someone like O'Brien, like I no, I was just a big fan of their show, big fan of the way they did stories, but primarily I just thought, well, he's, he's an American, you know? And for all I know, he's never heard of the story. And I had a plan for what I was going to do with the story. I had a plan of how I was going to structure it and how I was going to go about reporting this for my um, university. And I was petrified that I was going to make a huge, huge fuck up somewhere. And... I just didn't feel like qualified to kind of go around with a microphone and pretend to be a reporter and pretend to kind of put this big case together on my own without any guidance. So I thought, okay, I would ambush him backstage and I would basically just, the the question I had for him, I was going to give rattle through the story. And my plan was once I finished, like, here's a story, I was going to say, so here's a list of characters. Like, who would you speak to first? Like, how would you start this investigation? Like, do I speak to this camp first? Do I speak to this camp first? Like, I just primarily just want to know who should I speak to first? So I go backstage and he just finished his Estan talk and his <clears throat> road manager, which Brian doesn't like me speaking about because he doesn't want people to know he has the road managers. The only time I had um, a road manager. I didn't know what to do oh, with him either. Oh, Brian. I've, there was a guy who was assigned to me. I've known, I've known <laughs> Brian for 15 years. He's always had handlers. He's always had intermediaries. That's the thing about him. He travels with such an entourage, it's, it's impossible a, to get it, to him. It's obnoxious. You know? so um, I don't even call the guy anymore. Yeah. 
So before I even got into the room with him, his road manager was just kind of like, what are you, <laughs> you, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, so his road manager, Brian's road manager, was like, what are you, what are you doing here? Brian's road um, manager, he was wearing, and I said, he was wearing that, that like black t-shirt with just Brian written across yeah, the front, yes, right? Yeah, yes, yes, you've, you've met him, you've yeah, met yeah, him. Yeah, I know that yes, guy, yeah, exactly, sure. yeah, yeah, just I'm like an intimidating dude. I'll see yeah. later. <laughs> He's just too intense looking as well for a road manager, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think the job needs that level of intensity. 450 pounds. Um, Jack. He's massive. He's huge. You know, he's just dwarfing me. Um, and he's like, "What are you doing here?" That's how he speaks, right? Um, and and I just said, like, so I'm, I'm trying to speak to uh, I'm trying to speak to Brian if that's okay. I'm kind of like, you know, I'm a journalism student and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyways, he just wasn't feeling it at all. He was like, he's tired. He's very tired. And he wasn't even that late, but he was like, he's very tired. And I said, that's okay. Like, you know, I don't need I don't need long. I just I just need to just ask him just a few simple questions. Um, Anyway, eventually he just calls me in, and as he just called me, he goes, you got five minutes, you got five minutes, and I'm taking out the building. I was like, yeah, don't worry about it, it's all good, like, that's all I need. And I step in, and Brian's with a BBC reporter friend of his. And I must say, I actually remember this quite vividly, because Brian, mate, you also, you looked tired, like, you looked tired, and you looked, like, annoyed by my presence as well. So I walked in, Brian sat on his chair, there's a reporter dude next to him, it's a tiny cramp room, and I didn't think I was going to have an audience, like, it was Brian, but then there's also these two figures now. So I'm like, okay, and I've got like an audience of three to perform to. And I start speaking through the story. Again, with the intention that I'm just going to rattle through a quick kind of like summary and then ask Brian, who would you speak to first? And his BBC mate jumps in and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, Trojan horse. Yeah, it's an old case, you know, Muslims in Birmingham and, you know, teachers and something to that effect. And that kind of swiped my legs out from under me because in my head I had a whole script of how I was going to basically put the story across in kind of like, you know, strategic way so he can make some sense of it. You know, as you've heard now, it's a very dense story. There's a lot of layers to it. So I was just like, I had a whole plan in my head. And anyways, this guy just kind of rattles through the best beats and like leaves me with just the finale of just like, yeah, so that's the uh, Trojan horse, you know. <laughs> but luckily what he hadn't come across or at least didn't remember was the detail about Adderley Primary School that was kind of linked in some sense to Trojan horse. That, and I was aware of this Guardian article where there's like an employment tribunal that happens at the school and there's a judge that's presiding over it. And there was a quote that came out in the Guardian paper, which basically this judge makes a statement to the effect of that, like, the parties that are involved in this tribunal, the Trojan horse letter likely came from either one of them or someone associated with them or something to that effect. So I kind of decided, okay, my original pitch has just kind of been trampled on. So I'm just going to pivot now to this like specific school and basically paint a picture of this like this courtroom with a bunch of characters and a judge saying the letter likely came from someone here or someone associated with people here. And I thought that would kind of make it like a different kind of pitch and, and hopefully... Um, the BBC dude would kind of back off because he wasn't quite sure what I was talking about and Brian would just kind of engage with what I'm saying. So as I do this as like my new kind of approach to set up this like who do I speak to question, Brian jumps in and goes, that's a really good story. I might want to look into this with you. Now, my mind is like, what the fuck did you just say? Like, <laughs> the, I want to look into this with you. Like I, I just, for a, mile, for a second, I was just like this, uh, that was strange. So immediately I revert, like I, you know, my expectation shoots up like dramatically now because I'm like, oh, Okay, hang on. Hang, you you want you want you want to look into this with me? So I'm like again, I'm like playing it all cool. I was like, oh mate, just uh, yeah, just give me your uh, just give me your email address and like you know we'll be in touch and blah blah blah. You know, just tr trying to be all chill about things. But inside, I'm like screaming like, what the fuck did you just say? And Brian's like, give me my backpack. I'll give you my business card. And he's like shuffling around. He doesn't have a business card, right? Um, so I was like, mate, just give me your email. I'll write it in my phone. Like it's all good. Like you know we can do this this way. It's, it's pretty straightforward. 
and his road manager jumps in again. <laughs> oh my God. And I thought we were past is, that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Max needs to know this. Max needs to hear all I've of this. I've resisted like seven road manager jokes in the last five minutes. I'm so glad you brought no, it back no, up. No, no, no. Trust me. If there's a road manager in the first act of a story, you know what happens by the last act. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Totally, totally. Anyway, this dude jumps in and he's like, uh, I will connect you to... And I was like, well, he's right here. Like, I'll just, I'll just take his email. Like, you don't need to be involved in this. It's all good. And he was like, I will connect you to, you email me and I'll CC Brian. Anyway, Brian gets all confused. I get all confused. Next thing I know, I'm being escorted out of the building without his email address. And I'm like, well, what the fuck was that? Like, what, what, was, what was the point of that? And the funny thing was, as he was leading me out, this road manager dude, I hope he's not listening to this. But anyways, as he was leading me out, he was like, um, yeah, it's a fascinating story that you just told him, man. I was just like, yeah. Yeah, it's a good story. I agree with you. Like, can I just go back and get his details? Anyway, he pushes me out the door. I'm gone. And then I'm like, okay, maybe. So I email this road manager, dude. And I'm like, can you hook me up with Brian? No response. Just silence. Silence for a couple of weeks. I'm like, well, I, I don't understand this guy's game. And then eventually I just go on the This American Life website and I just figure out like, oh, their email structure has, you know, pretty clear pattern to it. I can, I can figure out what Brian's email is. So I just drop in an email, just like assuming this is email. It lands in his inbox, and um, yeah, I get a phone call a few days later, and here we are. <laughs> I was meaning to reach out to you, by the way. Oh, well, yeah. yeah, you know, you were. But yeah, how? No, I don't know. I would have figured it out. Your road manager. Yeah, exactly. No, because I was. Wa- yeah. yeah, I was waiting to hear from you. I was actually waiting to hear from you. It wasn't a casual thing. Like I, I was oh, really? interested okay. in the story. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. That's nice. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. You guys start doing this project together. You're an ocean apart. Brian's coming and showing up, and I assume you guys are having sort of like reporting sprints and then keeping in touch from New York to Birmingham. And But how did you guys develop your reporting partnership? There's this like buddy cop aspect of the show, which I feel like I've already encountered in this conversation too. Like, how did that happen? How did you guys figure out how to work together? Hmm. I feel like you should lead on this one, Brian. I've never worked with anyone else, so I, mean, I just, yeah. It was fun. You know, my background is as a producer at This American Life, and that's what the job is. Like, you're basically working with someone who probably hasn't done an, a radio or podcast story before. You know, in many cases, like, very, um, you know, experienced, accomplished, great reporters who just haven't done our medium before, coming from print or a filmmaker. You know, the job is you're reporting the story alongside them. You're doing the interviews with them. You're helping to produce the interviews, which is not just a technical thing. It's structuring the interviews in a way that allows the tape to work the best it can for audio. So that, like, wasn't abnormal to me. And it was actually nice. Like, in S-Town, I'd been doing everything alone. You know, I had an editor, but I was on the ground alone. And it was really fun to be kind of doing that again with Hamza. It was the first time he was doing everything, but he also had like a, a clear knack for it. You know, just kind of the best feeling. Like it felt like we both brought something to it and it was like a true collaboration in the best sense. You know, we worked on it for so long that we were both kind of like 
changing and adapting as it happened. And the story threw us each for like legit loops, <laughs> you know, through the process. <laughs> but yeah, it was fun working with somebody who had never done this before. It was actually, it was refreshing and, uh, and exciting. And also, you know, it felt like anything could happen <laughs> at certain points as well, yeah. <laughs> which is scary, but also something I was looking for in like a long-term project. I mean, the thing I'll, the thing I'll um, add to that is that obviously when he first came, I was petrified. I was like, okay, so how do I best stay out of his way? You know what I mean? Like here is someone who's, who's going to be much better at all of this than me. And I, how, how few mistakes can I make in this process? It turns out I can still make many, even when I'm consciously thinking about it. <laughs> but the thing which I think like really, at first I was really put off by it, but I think ultimately helped a lot in terms of us and the way we report the stories that Brian decided from day one, he was going to record everything, right? So I remember we went to um, my apartment and he just like started setting up these microphones. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, we're not interviewing anybody here. Like in my head, I was like, we, we will basically like have the um, microphones running when we're interviewing people. And then otherwise you and I can just kind of chill and like build a bit of a relationship together. And like, I'll get to know you, you get to know me in private. And then we'll kind of be doing our work um, in the meantime. He was recording everything. So it just kind of forced us to basically, like, even in our downtime, like, sometimes we'd be having dinner and he'd have the recorder on, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes we'd just be driving around aimlessly, he'd have the recorder on. And that just meant that we just had to basically speak to each other the way we normally would, because all day long the recorder was running. And I felt like that helped in, in the sense of the kind of story that you're hearing, because, like, there was no dissociation between, like, us two hanging out and chatting about things and us two working. Like, in my mind, I was just basically constantly just, like, hanging out with Brian on this journey together. But they legitimately what didn't feel like this is our private time and this is our work time. It's just right. the whole thing was just being documented. And part of that, Brian, is practical. Like, you never know what's going to happen. You never know what you're going to use. But is part of the idea what Hams is talking about that, like, if you're just recording everything all the time, then you're never really performing. You're never really on. I hadn't thought about it exactly in those terms. I mean, this is, this was new for me too. Like all those other times I've talked about where I'm producing other people, I did not record us kind of talking through the story. A lot of that was for tighter episodes of This American Life or right. something. But because I had the sense that this might be a long-term project that like could be multiple episodes, and because I liked the fact that Hamza was doing this story. Like, like what drew me to the story was Hamza having this question. Hamza being from Birmingham... Hamza doing a story for the first time, his clear hunger from the very first moments that he told me this story to just find out the answer to this question, who wrote the Trojan horse letter and why. I just liked the fact that it bothered him so much and that it happened right down the road from him, that he wanted to make this his first story. That was what sold the story for me. I don't know that like, you know, had my BBC friend pitched me this story, right. I would have done it. In the show... You guys have some of the most likable fights I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> it sounds as though, and even, you know, talking to you now, like it just sounds like uh, you guys just have, like such a kick out of each other. Mm -hmm. But it's a lot of time together. And then all of these story decisions. And I just, I wonder how you guys navigated it, at least from my vantage point, so mm -hmm. easily. I mean. Oh, you go. No, go on, go on. Overall, I was surprised at how little we got sick of each other, at least from my end. Like, I would have expected more. Feel free to say otherwise, Hamza. I don't mean to step on any truth that you might have to share here. But <laughs> um, This is why I wanted to go first, Max. No, <laughs> Hamza, go hard. Say all the things to Brian that yeah. you never said. But I think, like, kind of, like, at least what comes to mind now, like, 
the kind of toughest disagreements or debates we had was when we were getting to the point of like kind of around the time we're in Australia and stuff where it's like so many people weren't talking and Hamza was just like, we need to be like figuring out a way to go harder. Basically, we just need to be like scarier, essentially, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like to try and scare people into talking to us. And like, he was just really getting sick with like, we're friendly, like you can tell us anything, you know, like approach, which I'm used to when trying to approach sources who may not be eager to speak. You were getting pretty like legitimately frustrated, Hamza, with that stuff. Yeah, to a certain extent, like I was feeling kind of like the purpose of the story kind of fading away. Like I was, I was just sensing it. I was just sensing that like, we're not going to get anywhere with this question. Like we're not going to get to the place that I wanted this story to get to. And there was like a sense of panic, like kind of settling in to just be like, I always wanted to take the story to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And that's because I had lost all faith in like the reporting that already happened on the subject matter. Was that point a definitive answer to those questions? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that was my mentality with each source and each interviewer. I wanted the debate ended in the room because I didn't want commentary beyond it. I didn't want any kind of like interpretation beyond it. I wanted the situation to be resolved there and then. So I felt that I had some clarity about what I was saying and I felt the story had some clarity. And without certain answers, I thought we weren't going to be able to speak about this matter in a way that I wanted to speak about it. And around the time we're in Australia and stuff like this, like literally like it was there, there was nobody left like there's nobody left we pulled out every string everyone had either shut the door or ran away or like you know called the police on us or whatever they tried to do so it was just it was, you know it was, i was just realizing that like we're not gonna get there like we're not gonna get there and then i had next to me brian who just seemed pretty content with that no, i'm not saying content but like but like more accommodating you know what i mean more kind of like hopeful that like it's okay it's okay and i didn't want to hear that it's okay but what i will say about him is that like you know he's annoyingly generous you know what I mean it's so hard to get into a argument with Brian Reed like I tried I tried my best because sometimes <laughs> it's just nice to just kind of like just vent and get it out and sometimes it's nice just to have an opponent's opposite who you can just kind of go toe to toe with and just feel good about yourself afterwards or at least I find some thrill in it and he is just he's a ninja he will just like evade your kind of like you know approaches and give you the most reasonable generous kind of like responses and kind of back down and be like you know and it's it's hard it makes you feel like an idiot for trying to keep going you know what i mean like all right fine forget it. i love this guy you know <laughs> so it was very it was very hard to kind of uh, get him to engage in an argument in a way that i think is extremely healthy for him and uh, extremely unhealthy for me i think to it want comes that. out of i i appreciate that but i think it, like it comes out of our expectations like something that I, that i came to realize like over the course of working on this with you is um you know we say this in the last episode like like in that room when you came up to pitch me the story like i said to you it's gonna be really hard to find out who wrote it like it's probably impossible Mm -hmm. but it's but there's still value in the story like i can see that like this story will take you places that are important and you'll find things that are important and that's my understanding of journalism and storytelling in my experience is like if we only did stories where we get the definitive answer to the question like i'm not sure what we'd be doing you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) or what we'd be left doing and so i both desperately wanted to know the answer of who wrote the letter but kind of understood that we probably weren't gonna like get it beyond a shadow of a doubt and i thought that i had transmitted that to hamza and that he understood (laughs) that but as time went on i realized that he had not accepted that as the likely outcome and this is what was actually so energizing to work with you hamza because you never let like your hope and desire and like hunger to get that answer ever get dimmed like ever and it's remarkable it's a pretty remarkable 
thing to be next to somebody who's just like, till the end, like we need to do whatever it takes to get the, the truth of this. Because the thing about it is, again, I speak from a place of only having done one story. So take everything I say with like, you know, a bit of skepticism of like uh, you would with any novice. But I always just thought that like, if we produced a compelling narrative, if we explored a theory and gathered evidence to speak to it, but couldn't say anything definitively about the Trojan horse affair, I thought the people who would be um, convinced by it, the people who would be receptive to it, would already the people who would be open to these ideas, who would already be people who could understand and take it in and are um, the ones who don't necessarily need to be convinced. And what I was kind of gunning for is the people who otherwise would be difficult to kind of get them to engage with the story, get them to believe a certain thing about the Trojan horse, get them to roll back what they've already said about it or change their mind about what they said. I thought in order to change someone's mind, in order to speak to those people, we needed just proof, proof. Because that takes away the possibility of like, well, mm, I don't believe in, I don't like it, actually I don't like these people or whatever. Like for me, the purpose was compelling narrative, sure, but in order to kind of unpick the Trojan horse, you would need to convince a whole swath of people who aren't kind of allied with you guys. And in order to do that, you, you needed proof. That's why I kept going. Has that changed? Do you, do you feel that way now? It's early days, Max. Um, in principle, I do. In principle, I do. I still think that the people who believe the original narrative or are more likely to believe something like that about Muslims, I don't imagine they'll listen to this and think like, ah, oh, shit, yeah, maybe, um, maybe there was something else at play. You know what I mean? I think they'll still listen to it and go, yeah, I mean, decent story, but like, you know, we don't know. They didn't speak to everyone in Birmingham, you know what I mean? So for all we know, there's like a whole other narrative that wasn't explored. And I think that was my issue, trying to get them to change their mind. And given that gap, how do you guys find an ending? Both how do you decide when to call it with reporting? And then how do you land on an ending that feels satisfying? Because I don't know if you guys have heard this before, but sometimes podcasts are criticized for being unsatisfying. Yeah. For not nailing the end. I mean, the pandemic kind of called it for us, I'd say. <laughs> well, that, that was another question. Because yeah, al almost all the reporting, almost all the interviews are in person, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Luckily, we had pretty much finished. We did most of our reporting in 2019. Mm-hmm. And by the time of the pandemic, Hamza had actually come over to New York and we were kind of shifting to like a writing phase, basically. But there were some leads. We had our little to-do list of like another 10 days, you know, yeah. like, let's go check out this person, this person that, you know, who knows might, what might have happened. Like we were pretty close, but like pandemic and also just like our bosses just being like, you need to start writing <laughs> at this point. Like, you've gone to Perth. Like, let's, let's, yeah. let's just get to, like, get into the Google Doc and start writing. You know, yeah. Yeah, you hit what's known in podcasting as the Perth line. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Once you've crossed the international date line in yeah. your reporting and you're still coming up short, then... All right, so you guys were in that phase. Pandemic comes. Your bosses are telling you you got to call it. And when you're driving away from that school in Perth where Mark is working and won't come out of his office did it feel to you then like all right this is our our ending or is that something that comes much later in the process later i think yeah but yeah. what i will say is i've heard some tape around that moment in perth when we were just kind of like building the series and stuff and there's a conversation between brian and i in the car parked outside of that school when ahmed da costa just walked in where he and i are talking to each other like this this is the end like this is this is i remember having oh, a conversation really? it's recorded in the car yeah you should hear it yeah <laughs> pretty good tape you guys didn't think about using that 
I didn't know it existed. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about it. Yeah. Forgot about it. He starts the conversation from what I remember now listening back to the tape. He starts the conversation by just reminding me that like, hey, guess what's just happening? We've just sent a guy into the school with an envelope. He's going to walk into a reception room and he's going to place this envelope and like, you know, making the connection between the beginning of the story. And just from that, we just branched to like, you know, this is the final scene. Like, this is the thing that we can work towards, et cetera, et cetera. I was half listening because like I was still watching the school and hoping something to happen. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course. But like, shush, because, you know, we've still got a lot of work to do. But he in, the, in, in that moment realized there was some symmetry that we can kind of explore mm. as far as that ending is concerned. But I don't think we knew that that was going to be how like the episode ends or the series ends like till much later. But there was an awareness in the moment anyway. Yeah. Episode eight was actually part of episode seven for a while until relatively late the Australia trip. We didn't know if we would be able to get away with the whole episode, given where, how it ends. Mm-hmm. Like we knew that we'd had an experience with Ahmed da Costa, that he struck us as a pretty remarkable and interesting person. And it was having him with us on that trip and his personal connection to Mark and the story that allowed it to be what it was. I mean, I think like we, we actually joked at one point that without Ahmed there, that's probably one line in the script of like, we sought Mark Walters for comment. He declined. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> you know, but instead you get an entire episode <laughs> out of the experience of seeking that comment. It, like it was ex- a bit experimental, that episode, you know, yeah. and we weren't really sure exactly how it was going to work out. From a process standpoint, how do you find the confidence? Is there a moment? How does it, how does it land that something that feels experimental becomes satisfying, feels right? How do you guys do that? I remember the exact moment when that happened. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, actually. When the, yeah, like that was like a few yeah. months. Yeah, we wrote that episode in I don't know August or September, and I remember our kind of outline had episode seven, and then kind of like the last ten to fifteen minutes were going to be the trip to Australia. Mm-hmm. kind of was like our plan and then we started building it and we were like oh there's so much like stuff that's just happening in tape between us and Ahmed and there were like long stretches where we weren't having to write and we just liked the kind of like feel of it it felt like its own world and just kind of like a interesting departure from the rest of the series a lot of which is in writing or talking about documents it was just cool to be on the ground with somebody experiencing something so we put it together but the whole time we were like there's no fucking way this is working this is like so self-involved like we don't like you know there's like very little like revelation in the reporting that happens in that episode it's a lot more about like the experience and the and the process of seeking truth and so the whole time we're just like this is like we love this but it's never like we're never gonna let us do this like our editors are gonna and just as a process standpoint like we're writing we've worked on an outline with our editorial team which is sarah koenig rebecca lax julie snyder neil drumming and we're writing a draft, which we're then going to play for those guys. You know, we're going to read it aloud for them. And episode seven, we loved. Like, episode seven had our favorite reporting, because it was, like, the mystery that we, like, loved the most was that episode. So we read episode seven and eight to, like, Sarah and Neil and Becky. Right, Hamza? Yeah, I think it was Sarah and Becky. I don't know if Neil was even on that one. Okay. Yeah. And I remember, like, at the end of seven, they were like, we're so confused. Like, you need to fix this. Can episode seven be, like, really short? We're like, what the? This is like, we spent a year doing this reporting, trying <laughs> to get to this, like, audit report question. It's like the most goods we have. <laughs> you know, like, why? Like, we love this. And then we read eight. And the whole time I was so self-conscious because there's these long stretches of tape or of us knocking on doors and, like talking about uh, like some guy was like drunk behind the door and like we're not getting anywhere and Hamza like prays and gives like a like a soliloquy for two minutes and like you know on the beach like just ridiculous stuff that had like you know it was like 
you know, arguably besides us a point. <laughs> and, uh, and then we played it. And at the end, like Sarah was just like, I loved it. And I was like, no way. Like I was so self-conscious the whole time. Cause you're on zoom and I'm looking at her face. I'm looking at Sarah's face and she's like inscrutable. I'm like, she hates it. She hates it. She thinks <laughs> we're like, we've just wasted weeks putting this together. And she's so mad, <laughs> you know, that like we're doing this. And she was if, like, I, if, I, yeah, I loved it. I, I got to ask like, Hamza, if, if Brian is a fucking pretzel on a zoom in an edit with these people he's worked with for years and years, what is that experience like for you? I mean, I've, I, I very quickly just switched into some kind of this weird professional mode where like it just felt like I was just just to protect my own kind of just like nerves and apprehension of what was happening. Like as soon as I landed in New York and walked into the office with Brian and, and he just took me to uh, Ira's office and he's like, oh, Ira, this is uh, this that guy. And like, <laughs> it's fucking Ira Glass now. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm like, OK, I don't think I've quite transitioned from like fan to like colleague yet. You know what I mean? So I'm like very quickly just titrating my kind of self to just be like, hey, Ira, yeah, how are you, know, how are you doing? You know what I mean? Like I just kind of just, I go into this like place mm. where it just feels like, you know, like we've known each other and like I'm a man, I'm casual. But inside again, I'm just very aware that I'm speaking to Ira Glass and like he's just like asking me questions about stuff. But I had to just very quickly just kind of like just catch up to like, oh, there's there's uh, there's uh, Sarah Koenig. Yeah, like, you know, made the biggest podcast in uh, history. And like, oh, there's uh, Julie. Yeah, like, like who was, was there? Um, and like, you know, the, the whole the whole thing was just like, like I had to very quickly just get into just like uh, professional mode and just like, no, we're colleagues now. We're working on a thing. We're working on a thing. What helped is that by this point, Brian and I had been alongside each other for a number of years, I think. And so there's one person who I knew. And one person who up to this point still had like kind of faith in me and kind of carried me into this office of like, you know, so I just thought like, whatever, if he thinks I'm all right, if he thinks like up to this point, he's kind of been alongside me for a number of years. And if he thinks I've, I've got it, I'm just going to just pretend I have mm -hmm. until I'm told otherwise. And luckily I just wasn't told otherwise, but like, you know, I probably should have been a number of times. <laughs> someone, someone should have been like, why don't you shut up? Because you've not done this before. But just to say that experience, you were talking about like uh, episode eight and like when it felt right. I remember that first edit like vividly as well, but he said, Brian, that we read eight. The first version of eight that we had. <laughs> That's true. I th I'm, I'm exaggerating here, but like there might have been like six lines of writing, you know, something crazy. Like it was all tape. Uh -huh. It was just tape to tape, tape to tape, tape to tape. And we literally like just read the opening and then we just press play. And he and I just sat back and we're just watching. At no point were we speaking. Now and again, we'd kind of go Mark's door or whatever. And then we'd just fade <laughs> again and just people would like the tape would just play. And it was about 22 minutes like this of just entirely tape or something. And we thought we were going to get an absolute bollocking mm -hmm. to just be like, okay, so clearly, <laughs> clearly you guys haven't prepared yeah, this episode yeah. enough you and you just turned up with just the tape. Just didn't do any work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But no, it was amazing. It was amazing. Like what I will say, it's just testament to, the, to, to all of them. You know what I mean? Like they have been so generous with me throughout this whole process. Blind faith, blind trust. You know what I mean? Like we're in structuring talks. I'm throwing ideas out there based on what? I don't know, but they seem to be taking it. Like the, the whole process just felt like I just felt in a space that like I could say stuff and uh, have it be treated with respect even if I don't have any experience to call on. And I love that. It just eased me into like the whole writing process. Yeah, that's remarkable. Hamza, I understand the idea of feeling like you need evidence in order to change minds. But from an audience perspective, like just from the story part of it, were you guys worried about not being able to answer that definitively after setting it up so clearly at the beginning or, or not? I mean, just to say, I never, as, as Brian alluded to uh, earlier, I never accepted it. I was even up to about a month ago when we were sending out like final write replies to people. I was still like, maybe, 
maybe something will shake loose. Mm -hmm. Maybe someone will break form. Maybe I think it's just when the thing got broadcast on Thursday, I was like, all right, well, there we go. We're not we're not going to be able to say something about that question. That's when the door closed for you. Yeah. Like I I just I never had that moment where I pulled back and was just like, I don't think we're going to answer this. I think if I thought that halfway along the process. I probably would have just given up. I would have been like, well, forget it then. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not, not, there's nothing to uh, share here. Yeah, Hams and I were very much for a while kind of just like on our own in Birmingham, just trying to answer this question and doing like every lead we could think of to like try and shake it loose. But it was when we started having like editorial discussions that people started to be like, this is a compelling theory that you have. And a lot of our reporting actually, like, it became more about what did the government do in response to this letter? Like, mm-hmm. how did the people in charge act when faced with this piece of misinformation, basically? And it became clear that, like, we were going to dispense with the question of who wrote the letter by yeah. the end of episode two, <laughs> kind of in the structuring. People were kind of became less and less interested in that as we described more of our other reporting about how the people of the council responded to kind of very obvious information in front of them how how they interacted with the national government what the national government did in response those questions became more interesting to our editors and to us too and that was helpful to be reminded of like this question is important but really it's only important in relation to the fact that nobody looked into it and in fact it was very like staring them in the face what they should have looked into right (laughs) i mean not to lay it on too thick but you know it's not like you haven't had um shows that have questions at the beginning that are dispensed with after episode two either it's brian's signature (laughs) yeah exactly yeah it felt like a familiar structure i was like is this like am i learning something about like podcast structure because i feel like we don't have the history that like tv does i don't want to say formulaic but these kind of like accepted structures that hans has taught me about actually like midpoint and you know like i don't know whatever the, the the kind of like accepted like names for structural moments are i don't know in my experience we don't have that in podcasting we're kind of like at least in our shop i don't know if you guys have it max no i mean i i think that's what makes this stuff so exciting is that there are so few rules by which people feel like they need to play and you can approach it in a bunch of different ways i mean the thing to me that felt so distinct about the show was the way that you both hosted it together and i don't think i've heard a two hosts show that worked in anyway like this one has that to me structurally was like the absolute magic trick of it that's sweet man that's sweet oh i appreciate that that was one of the things we were playing with for sure because obviously there's plenty of shows that are hosted by more than one people i mean serials even done it before with emmanuel and sarah i remember talking about this pretty early on as we did the thing where we started recording everything you know there'd be things that happened where i was starting to think like oh like we have a choice here when we actually tell the story when i call to deliver hamza news for instance yeah. about like something that I've just received in my email that he doesn't know about yet. Is it more powerful and interesting for him to narrate that as the person being surprised? Or is it more powerful or interesting for me to narrate into that as the person who knows the news I'm delivering? And, you know, even if I didn't decide that at the moment, I was aware that there were these moments where we would have an interesting choice that I had not played with before as a storyteller in this medium. And that felt exciting. So I'm glad it came through. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, the thing that was so striking to me about it was that you were both somehow simultaneously interchangeable and totally distinct. (laughs) You you know what I mean? Like you were playing the same role in different places in the same episodes, taking turns, sort of narrating and leading, and yet doing it from completely distinct vantage points. And also in a way didn't totally matter who was doing it. It felt 
incredibly hard and yeah there are, there are some parts where it really doesn't matter who does it and there are some parts where it where it does and we're doing something with the choice of who's narrating which part how many times did you guys track these episodes like going back and forth and back and forth getting that rhythm between the two of you right how much time did that take how much practice did that take for you guys the tracking wasn't so bad it's more than the edits like we just edited these things to death we edited them so much that i think we learned like it'll be better if you say this part or like <laughs> kind of i'm getting tired of hearing you for a long time or hey man give me a give me a chance or you know like um it's through the edits i would say that we really kind of like developed that you know and started to learn the aesthetic of the show and our roles in it you know hamza was it hard for you to sound spontaneous with words that you had found yourself saying hundreds of times Yes. Yeah, I remember going into the studio the first day we were, like, recording episode one, and, like, with everything else in this, in this experience, like, it was the first time I was in a studio recording a podcast, you know? And, yeah, we just got going, and the thing is, Brian is just, like, he delivers words so magically that I'm sat next to this guy. His voice is just doing all sorts of things with the narration. I'm like, fuck me, mate. Can you make it any harder for me right now? And then I come <laughs> in with this kind of, like, just, like, kind of, like, dull, droning voice and just kind of, like, speaking away, but, like... I just switched off. I was like, listen, this is how I speak. This is how I'm going to say this stuff. I don't know if it's going to be engaging, but I don't know what else to do with it, you know. I was just I used to watch him and like, uh, you know, when he's reading, I started copying him a little bit, but when he's reading, like his arms would be all over the place. Like he would almost be like like a, you know, conductor and orchestra just kind of yeah. like, you know, moving his arms around and like That's you know. me copying Ira. Oh, really? Okay, okay. Well, there it is. Yeah, yeah. It's a a, a heirloom that gets passed down. So I just saw him just kind of like, you know, just like doing this to like, you know, really kind of uh, to each word. And I thought I'd do that. But like my arms didn't move quite as clearly as him. So I just started doing this kind of weird kind of like dictator arm that was kind of just banging on the desk. uh, But that just helped me get a bit of a rhythm going. You know what I mean? I was just like, just um, any trick like that. I was just like, he sat next to me. So whatever he was doing, I was just like, okay, that works. Or this works. And actually his posture, he sat up now or he's sat back now. Like these are the... I was just watching him and just like hoping uh, it worked out. Brian, you were saying earlier it would have been like uh, very meta to have you guys talking about the ending at the ending of the show. But there is a lot of talk in the show, a lot of thinking and questions and wrestling with the idea of journalism. And I'm interested in what point you guys decided to take those ideas and questions and make them text and not subtext. And then how you find a way to talk about them and write about them well, felt as naturally as, as you did, because I think that stuff is hard to make compelling and not arm's length and highbrow. So how did you guys think about the ideas of journalism coming into the show? It was really hard. I think that's actually what took so long, was figuring out what, like, what we took to like calling the journalism arc. And it's just a testament to editing, I'd say. Like Our editors just like saved us. And those parts of the show will have differing reactions i think some people will say like why do i need to hear from you guys at all i'm here to hear the reporting you know and and that's valid you know and i've seen some response so far of like people really appreciate it or or it certainly strikes them and makes them think about the story differently and the perspectives like hamza and i are bringing to the story if it doesn't feel overwrought it's because of editing (laughs) i would say it's because of (laughs) sarah becky neil us just writing and like trying to get ideas out, but having to like kind of put it in the most kind of overwritten, crude, over explainy way. And then just like over and over again, them trying to pair us back or hone an idea or force us to explain something a little better or to like move mm-hmm. something from text into subtext. I mean, did it even feel like a choice to you guys? Or did it feel like you had to do that? Like it wasn't a choice. 
There had to be some level of it. Yeah. Like there was a version of the first opening of the series where I opened the series. Like I'd written a beginning. You know, I think the idea was like, people know who you are, Brian. You should start it. Like you're not going to start with this like rando, <laughs> you know, nobody's ever heard before. And not mention that like someone who's actually done a show before that people have listened to, like not even mention that you're involved until six minutes in or whatever. But um, I remember like the reaction to that first read was kind of like, Julie Snyder in particular was just like, I have no idea like why you're telling the story. And there's a way you can just do reporting where you don't like the narrator doesn't have like a personal connection to it, but there's something about the types of stories we're doing where the investment is so big in this medium, which has an intimacy to it going on for episodes at a time where it's just easier and more relatable. If you can understand why the person, the person's not some voice of God, the person is a person who's undertaken a project for a reason. Even if we didn't, you know, end up building kind of big ruminations or diversions about journalism in the show, there's, I think what we're figuring out as we do more of these shows kind of in our world at Serial in This American Life is like it just helps to have the reporter or narrator be able to explain what interested them at the very least or like why they're connected to the story. And once we switch that up, the top worked much better once Hansa began it and kind of just explained like, I heard this happen. I was living in town when it happened. It was just like a much more human way to explain why this thing exists in the first place. Where are you at on it, Hamza? <laughs> Uh, I was very uncomfortable at the beginning, I remember, yeah. when uh, we were structuring uh, the series, like, I was adamant to be like, okay, no, 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 no. We're going to keep the whole journalist spectacle to kind of like, as as, as minimum. So I, I'd done stuff in the reporting process <laughs> that meant there was always going to be an element of it that we had to, you know, comment on and, and make part of the narrative because I'd placed the project in that situation through my own actions. So I was like, okay, I was well aware. You're talking about the letter. I'm talking about the letter. Yeah. So once that moment happened, there was always like, okay, well. Not the letter, but the other letter, your letter. <laughs> right. Not the, not the many, Trojan many host letter, but the, series, the, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you be more specific, yeah. uh, Max? Yeah. Um, <laughs> We're making the assumption that people who are listening to this have probably listened to the show, but Hamza wrote a letter to a source basically saying, this is what I've always believed. And this is where I'm coming from. Right. So once once that moment happened, it was, you know, like, that's part of the narrative now. That's part of the experience. That's part of this project. And, like, it would be a very bizarre thing just to kind of dip your toe into it. Just be like, oh, suddenly here's, like, here's one of the reporters going, like, you know, too far. And, like, it, it's it's a weird thing to set up without having some kind of thread that, that goes along with it. I remember there's two things, actually. One was that letter. And then uh, Bohr won. The interview that we did with Albert Bohr, the first interview that we did, and I remember that was like first week of reporting. I think it was like the f- first kind of like big official we were interviewing. And I think I'd known Brian for like a day or two by that point. And we went into this room and, you know, we're doing this interview. And for about two hours with this guy, he was kind of like, you know, he, he's speaking stuff that was pissing me off. And I was very actively keeping my mouth shut because I'm like, shh, you're a reporter now. You're a reporter now. You're a reporter now. You don't say anything. You don't say anything. You just kind of listen. You listen. You listen. So when we come out of uh, Council House where we met him, like for two hours, I'd just been suppressing, suppressing, suppressing. So like, I didn't know, initially, I didn't know he was still recording and I just like burst because it was like, you know, all the stuff that I didn't say in the room were just like flowing out of me. And so we kept walking and talking. So we had a bunch of tape that happened after that interview, which again, if we weren't kind of like centering our story in any sense, that conversation would not have necessarily been a part of the process. So when we heard that tape and the editors liked it and stuff like this, like there was, there was just things that had happened as part of the reporting process, which meant that there had to be an element of that storyline weave through. 
but it just was kind of as we were building each episode like there was just bits that were that just felt relevant and right and, and and important to include as part of the commentary and what was happening and again i don't think we specifically planned for it to be like that exhaustive of a storyline but like it just felt right it just felt like a thing that was carrying us through the story both the things that hamza just talked about those big moments those happened in 2018 i believe mm-hmm. so then another thing that happened was the summer of 2020 like in the middle of, of reporting this project where among the many you know, m- the many things that were happening in society after the, the murder of George Floyd was a discussion in our industry, in the industry of journalism about identity and like personhood in reporting, basically. Like the question of being both a person and a journalist became very present. I don't know, it was certainly something we talked about a lot of just like this is giving a name and like a lot more experiences like are, are being shared by reporters and journalists of color, you know, over decades who've had different types of struggles and experiences of having to suppress who they are or feel like they have to suppress who they are or betray who they are in some way or, or trying not to and running into, you know, um, friction and pushback from people within their own organizations, from the industry, you know, like just lots of stories coming out about this. And it just felt like, oh, yeah, this is like what's been happening with us, <laughs> you know? Right. So I think it actually feels like a different conversation now because of that summer. But a lot of the stuff that happened, like, happened before that summer as well. So that context gave you guys a different way to think and talk about the gap between how you were approaching the story? Somewhat. Somewhat. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were talking about it. Like, we were building the story around those moments at that point. And then that happened in the middle of it. And it kind of made it feel more important and, like, a little stranger to pretend that that wasn't part of the process and that wasn't something that had like been an important part of us working together like to try and like not talk about that felt very strange to like to save those discussions for like a conversation like this but not have it in the show itself i don't know this is a medium to try things different and let's let's try this here and see what happens hamza how do you feel about how it played out i thought and i I said this to brian throughout that like if i thought it was worthwhile then I don't mind kind of just portraying all that happened between us and, and, and the story and the way we reported it, if, if I felt it was worthwhile. And I reserved judgment for a while. We built episode three, we built episode four. It was when we got to episode six, where like that moment happens with my letter. I remember thinking, no, I think I think this is, it's a decent thing for me to kind of like impel myself for, you know what I mean? Like, I think like it allows us to speak about things that I don't know if we would do without my mistakes and without like having just that be a part of this process. And so at that point I was, I felt settled by it. Up to that point, I I, I just felt this was weird and like self-indulgent and navel-gazy and I was just kind of like, what is going on here? But when we got to episode six, I just felt that there was a purpose to it and it just felt okay to me for us to try it. I don't know how other people feel about it, but like for me, I got to a place with it where I thought it was okay to try. You know what? Let's Can we take a second and just listen to you guys have this conversation on the phone? I think it's worthwhile. I mean, you know, we could have done this 15 different times in this interview, but this moment is so critical and I just want people to hear it again. So here's, here's a clip from the top of episode six. You two are on the phone talking about this letter. This is slightly edited down from what's actually in the show, but I just want to refresh people's memory for a second. Brian started reading a letter to me that had just been sent to the tribunal by the three Muslim TAs in response to his request. The main responsibility of a journalist is to report the news in a truthful, unbiased, and apolitical way, and to educate the public about events and issues and how they affect their lives. I do not believe these matter will be reported in, quote-unquote, an unbiased and apolitical way. 
The lead figure in this exercise is Mr. Syed, a student journalist who intends to use Mr. Reed's radio station as a medium to advocate his opinions. Oh, wow. We have received letters directly, indirectly, slash indirectly from Mr. Syed attached. They've attached my letters? They have. Oh, boy. It is the contents of these letters which raise concerns. We quote a paragraph from the letter addressed to Mr. Aslam. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Quote, I'm on a master's program for investigative journalism currently. I graduate this September. The Trojan horse began as my dissertation project and as my first attempt to start writing wrongs. I never believed in the official narrative regarding the Trojan horse. I never believed the letter was authentic. I never believed Tahir Alam was masterminding the sinister Islamic plot. I never believed Birmingham City Council. I never believed Peter Clark. I never believed Michael Gove. I never believed Rizwan Adar. And I never believed your sisters wrote those resignation letters. What I believe is I'm going to change this narrative, inshallah. End quote. Oh, boy. With each old boy, I was coming to terms with both how bad and how confusing the situation was. Hamza, man, what, what is going through your mind? On the, on the one hand, you've made what feels like this quite critical, major mistake, potentially. But also, it's this opportunity to open up a conversation between you and Brian about objectivity and bias and these ideas that are sort of at the heart of the whole show and the scandal and the story. And what is that like for you? Where, where are you at in that moment? Yeah, it was it was, it was, a, it was a it was a complicated moment. I I remember vividly when it happened. Like I hadn't talked to Brian for a couple of months. Um, I think it'd been a couple of months, maybe maybe nah, not that But long. I hadn't. You were in the middle of your your project, though. I know. Yeah. yeah, and this was yeah. the final week. And Brian texts, like, can we jump on the phone? And like, I wasn't expected to hear from him. He knew it was my final week. Like, I was thinking, but I thought it was something thrilling. I thought something exciting. Like, I can't wait until Monday. Like, I was like, oh, here we go. So I'm all like, hey, man, like, what's going on? Um, anyway. As he's talking, I'm just like, oh my God, like, like, like we're fucked. Like we're fucked, fucked. You know what I mean? Like it's just, and for me, like it was devastating because up to this point, like, you know, I was going to university and doing this and I was two days away from like finally finishing my course and being able to just kind of like lean into this process like full time. And I was so excited. Like, here we go. I'm actually going to report the story and be arrested. You know what I mean? This is going to be a new experience. And then this thing happens. And anyway, as he's talking, I'm listening, I have a recorder running because he's told me to have one set up and I'm like listening and I'm just like, I, I cannot take it in because like, you know, he's speaking about a lot of things. He's reading quotes back to me about a letter that I don't even remember like fully where I typed in it myself. And I'm just like, I, I could not take it in. So I was like, mate, mate, can you just, can you give me five minutes? Literally just so my mind can just catch up because in my head, I'm already figuring out, okay, so the story's finished um, and you're now going to graduate in two days' time, but, like, what's, what are you going to do for, like, your job? Like, I'm already planning, like, you know, what's going to happen now that this is dead. And so, and meanwhile, he's talking in my ear about, like, you know, we don't do this, we don't do this. Like, what have you done here? So I was like, mate, just give me five minutes. Like, give me five minutes. Actually, just go drink some water just so I could just have you stop speaking and have my mind catch up to what's happened and, like, maybe we can come back and, and, and say something. I'll be able to say something coherent. So I go sip some water, and as I'm drinking my water, I'm just like reminding myself what he said what he read back to me and I was like yeah I believe that like all of that it's true like I, I mean you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not saying it's it's good that it's out there but I'm like is it not good that it's out there like that's what I believe like I, you know like what am I 
I don't know, I was just so confused about what I was supposed to say or do to that because I'm not gonna like row it back, it is the truth. So then when he calls me back, Hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. F- I did. I did. I feel like I was lecturing you there. I didn't mean for it to come off that way. I'm really sorry. No, no. Listen, listen, listen. You got. <laughs> hey, you got nothing to apologize for in this situation. I have fucked us both up. And it's my fault. And you know, you're being surprisingly patient with me. If I'm honest, if I was, trust me, I would not be this diplomatic with you if that was you who done that. Um, man, whatever. I'll, I'll own those words. I will own those words. You know. Um, what do you mean, uh, own them? Do you believe them? Like, are they true? Well, okay. Here's uh, let, 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 let me uh, let me just be frank here. Okay, what's that list again? Who am I saying that I don't believe? Um, you never believed in the official narrative regarding the Trojan horse. That seems Which fair. That's fine. Yeah. I never believed the letter was authentic. Take that one. Uh, you never believed Tahir Alam was masterminding the sinister Islamic plot. I didn't. I never believed Birmingham City Council. I don't. I still don't. Uh, I never believed Peter Clark. I don't. Uh, I never believed Michael Gove. I don't. I never believed Rizvan Adar. I don't. I, I, that's the tape I didn't hear until the edit. Like, I refuse to hear it. I've never read that letter again because just the trauma of the moment. So it's the first time I heard it was when we were building that episode for the edit. And I can hear myself on the tape and I like very casually when he calls me back, I'm like, yo, you know what I mean? Like I'm immediately in a different place mentally. I can hear it. And it just created that kind of like, you know, the, um, the kind of like dividing the conversation where I'm just like, I, I'm full of guilt and I'm full of shame, but I'm also like, I'm not rowing those words back because it's true. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, in some sense, like, I remember telling him like afterwards when we were reporting, when we continued to report that like, I'd, so I felt liberated actually. I felt liberated by that moment. I felt like, oh, finally, I don't have to pretend like this is who I am. This is what I believe. And that's just so, like I was relieved that like every interview we go into now, there's an awareness that's, that's like, that's, that's been created by this letter of mine that I don't have to pretend to be some kind of transcendent kind of reporter that who's not affected by this or who has no thoughts about this. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that, those mm-hmm. are my ideas, you know? And yeah, it was kind of like weirdly uh, comforting as the process went on. Once I knew the story wasn't going to be killed, I was like, great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Brian, there's a moment, I think it's in that episode where you say, I was in the middle of a change in how I understand my work there was a way I'd gone about my job for years that I'd begun to doubt without admitting it to myself. And I have some ideas and I also may have missed it, but I'm, I'm not sure that I heard you say in the show exactly what that was. Mm -hmm. Is it something you can articulate? I can try. It has to do with like when I listened to that conversation I had with Hamza after that letter came out, I'm expecting him to do the work the same way I do it. And to like approach the work of journalism the same way I have for a long time. And there's an expectation I have and he's like, hasn't met that expectation. And I'm like upset about it, you know? And at the same time, like I'd always thought of myself as someone, you know, I work for, I don't work for like some stodgy old newspaper. I work at a place, this American life where there's a lot of room for creativity, where personal perspective and takes on stories is encouraged. And I'd always thought that, that was something I was um, open to and conversant in. You know, I felt like I'd worked on, on stories like that and worked with contributors like that and colleagues like that. But kind of as time went on working with Hamza and that experience as well, the summer of 2020, 
talking to colleagues more, talking to just people more <laughs> as consumers of journalism. Like I still wasn't as open to it as I thought I was. I still had an idea of like how this work is supposed to be done and these ideas that have really come into question in the last few years about, you know, objectivity and impartiality, the, you know, quotes around these words about what they actually mean and its role in journalism and its role in, in kind of like allowing a status quo to persist. And that's kind of what I'm talking about there. And I, what I kind of hope, you know, without having to like spell it out is like the existence of this story and the series and the way we tell it that when you get to the end, you kind of realize like this is different in certain ways and it would not have been told this way if not for Hamza and my perspectives clashing, Hamza's perspective driving the question in the first place. Like, had I told this story alone, it would sound completely different. Like, I, I have no idea, like, how it would even sound. Yeah. And to try and imagine that there's some kind of agreed-upon point of view that we're all supposed to take to stories and kind of inhabit within a realm of acceptability in our field, like, I just don't agree with that anymore. And I don't even, I feel confused that I ever accepted it to the extent mm -hmm. that I did. Yeah. I mean, during this process, like I went, at one point I wrote about this, it got cut, but like, you know, I went and looked, I was like, what did I, where did I even learn this idea of like, you're not supposed to share your feelings in a certain way, or you're supposed, you know, this idea of like, you know, objectivity and open-mindedness, like, how did I even learn it? And I, you know, cause like, I'm working with this guy, it's his first story. He just went to journalism school. Like I know where he learned it. Hamza wrote an essay on impartiality, like for school. Like I didn't go to journalism school. Like where did I even internalize this idea? And I went back to this. Book, I, I, my first real journalism job is, was uh, at NPR through a fellowship there called the Croc Fellowship. And the first week they gave us this book that was written by um, like a longtime producer there, Jonathan Kern. I think it's called Sound Reporting. I, I knew they'd given this this book and I'd read it, you know, whatever, 13 years ago or something. And like I look back at the part about impartiality and bias. And there's some line in there about like like a charge of bias is like the worst possible charge that a reporter can ever be stung with, basically. Something pretty dramatic like that. I might be overstating it quite, you know. And I just remember reading that and being like, yeah, of course. Like, I don't remember having a single thought about that when I read that book, you know. And I remember looking back at it, like, doing this work with Hamza and just being like, I just slipped into this mode of doing things very unquestioningly, mm -hmm. you know. And, and that's kind of what I'm talking about there is how easy it was for me to slip into that. Whereas in the show, you hear, you know, Hamza's reaction to one of the first interviews he's ever done as a, as a journalist with Albert Bohr and how much feeling it stirred in him to sit through that interview. Mm -hmm. Like that just never happened to me. And that's by dint of who we are and what we're bringing to these stories and the way we see them. When we started talking, I know you said you feel sort of like numb and not sure what to do because you've had this punch list for months, <laughs> but hearing you say all that, I mean, I sort of feel like I have to ask, like, do you have any sense of how that change will impact the work you do going forward? Because you're in a pretty unique position in this industry. I mean, you can, you can do whatever you want. Whatever I want. Awesome. That sounds great. <laughs> no. Do you disagree with that? I don't know. I don't know. Sure. I, I mean... No, I don't feel like I could do whatever I want, but I feel like there are cool opportunities. This is a dumb thing yeah. for us to debate, but I'm also right. But the okay. question is whether you have some sense of how that change could impact the work you decide to do. Um, what I'm most interested in right now is like helping people. Like, I think what I could bring is like, I've done this a few times. I've worked in this field a long time. I've worked in this medium for more than a decade, kind of longer than it's kind of been 
in vogue as a medium since, you know, like kind of after serial, there's so many people interested in podcasting and it's awesome. And a lot of people are trying to tell stories in audio and along with some of my colleagues, like we've just been doing it for a while, like since kind of like the public radio, this American life days. And what's exciting to me is to kind of like find people who have a story to tell or that they want to report like Hamza who haven't done it before. There isn't a long tradition of like podcasting school the way there was film school or something, you know, there just isn't, there aren't those like structures to kind of like train people in the medium itself. And I feel like kind of working with people who have a story that they're hungry to tell for whatever reason, who have a personal connection to that story in some way or another and working with them to try and figure out how to tell it in this medium and push the medium in the process of doing that. That's what I would like to spend my time doing more than like kind of reporting my own story. That's what seems most exciting to me. Hamza, I got two questions for you and then, and then we're done. I wonder how it strikes you to have part of your goal for the show to be to change people's mind and to hear your partner of four and a half years <laughs> talk about how you changed his mind. <laughs> He's been speaking this way for a number of years with me, you know what I mean? Like about the story and what is, et cetera, et cetera. And I had ideas, but like, I always also knew that I, I'm like, I'm so fresh to this that it's ridiculous for me to kind of like stand behind these ideas as if they're like principles that everyone should abide by because what the fuck do I know? You know what I mean? Like I'm doing this first story and this is just what I feel about it. But there was something about him reflecting some of these ideas back and him speaking to what this process has meant to him and like what, you know, the way I regard him, that for him to be taking in some of these ideas and feeling certain way about it I had so much more I don't know like like faith in my own words you know what I mean I was like what well, if Brian Reed is thinking the stuff that's coming out of my mouth is reasonable then maybe I am talking sense you know what I mean and there's, 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 there was a process of just like like just for a while as I was like kind of rattling through this stuff it was just like you know what does Brian make of it because um, mm. that would mean something to me so it meant a lot. It meant a lot when he was taking in these ideas and feeling a certain way about it and questioning his own approach to journalism and stuff like this. It meant a lot. And it was settling. Yeah, I just felt kind of more with the reporting that we were doing because I knew the person next to me was also kind of starting to see what it was all about or why I was hmm. doing it. The show starts with you saying that this is your first and likely your last story. Mm -hmm. Is that how you feel sitting here right now? Is this your last one? I don't know. I only, I don't know. Like I, I was asked this a couple of nights ago by someone, um, and I've had a bunch, a bunch of tweets about that. Don't give up. Don't give up. You know, like et cetera, et cetera. And like, I don't necessarily feel like giving up, but like there's a, uh, like you have to understand the day I walked into that dressing room, what 2017 or whatever it was. Like I haven't had time to actually process what's happening. Like this whole thing has just been accidentally ignited and I've been kind of doing it, doing it, doing it and, you know, reporting and writing and now we've just launched it and now we're doing stuff like this and I, I legitimately haven't had time to just kind of like step back and go like, whoa, I just went down the road to a, a talk about a podcast and I'm sat here in New York talking to you now, you know what I mean? So there is, there is just a bit of just catching up to just be like, what's happened and how I feel about what's happened. Am I going to do things again? Sure. Um, <laughs> I just don't know what those things are yet and where they'll be and who will be with. That's all up in the air. But um, I'm open to ideas, Max, you know. If I had to say, I think that you should uh, prepare to get a road manager. <laughs> <laughs> 
I know a brilliant one. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Hamza, Brian, thank you guys for doing this. Thanks, Max. Thank you, mate. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. This episode was edited by Gabriella Saldivia. Susan Peterson was our intern. Thanks to them. Thanks to Vox, who we make this show in partnership with. And thanks so much to Hamza and Brian. Their show is The Trojan Horse Affair. And if you've gotten this far, you've already listened to it. But I don't know. Maybe go listen to it again. We'll see you next week. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath, then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.